turn on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware, consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Naughty Talk. Sunny here, she, her, and I am here again with the wonderful Panda Pet, <laughs> it, they, she, and... I cannot believe we're already on season one, episode nine. Uh, I know. I feel like we were just like talking about we should do a podcast and like now (laughs) we're like nine episodes in and we have all of these cool shorts and we've had all of these cool guests and I'm having a really fun time with it. You're like a real celebrity now, man. -uh. (laughs) (laughs) Not even, but um I don't know. I feel like we're starting to get some regular listeners and we're starting to have dialogue with people about the podcast and um, really they just come for you because you're super cute. On lies. You were also super cute. (sighs) (laughs) Anywho, uh, (laughs) while we're over here being super cute, we're actually going to talk about (laughs) something super dark. That is kind of our thing. We do our, our super cute, super dark Mm-hmm. Um, little situation. We're actually going to talk about fear play today. Yeah, one of my favorites. I also really enjoy fear play. Although usually when we engage in fear play, you and I are on opposite sides of the slash. So I think that'll give some really good kind of dual perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. But why don't we even just start by saying what even is fear play? Like, what is it? Why do you love it? I think that fear play, like in its broadest definition, is just engaging in any kind of kinky play that induces fear. Or, like, whether that be like actual, like, real, like, visceral, like, I'm scared right now fear, like, in a really big, intense kind of way, or whether it's just like kind of like poking at it here and there and like engaging in that discomfort. But really, it's leaning into that. I love it because I love taboo. I love looking at what makes people uncomfortable and why and kind of leaning into that discomfort. Personally, I just like it because I love pushing my boundaries and finding my own edges and like pushing them out a little like more and more and more, uh, which is really a way I consider myself an edge player and fear play and psychological play do that in a big way for me. So, I mean, really at a, a simple level, fear play is sort of harnessing the emotion of fear, which is a super powerful emotion. Yes. And using it 
for sexy time. I would say using it for pleasure, but like depending on the situation, pleasure is not always the goal of a sexy scene. So <laughs> I would say, you know, fear play is harnessing that massive emotion of fear in a way that is hot and using it in a sexual scene. And consensual. And always consensual. Yes. So fear play is interesting because fear is something that is so individual for every single person. Mm-hmm. No two are going to have the same set of things that they are afraid of. And not only do people have different fears, but they tend to have very different lines in the sand that sort of separate what is sexy fun fear from like totally traumatic don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole in a scene fear. Right. So do you want to talk about where those lines kind of are for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So psychological fear play in general is something that I'm pretty happy to engage in when it's like on a person-to-person level. So like serial killer role play or like anything where like we're role playing that like my life is going to be threatened or that I might be harmed in some way is totally like that's my green that's my happy place because I really like that thought that idea for some reason that like I'm not safe um because I know unconsciously and even consciously in the back of my mind somewhere that I am safe. And that's really where like the CNC, which is consensual non-consent aspect really comes into it for me is that it takes feeling safe to truly feel like I can play in a way that makes me feel unsafe in that moment. And that's why I feel comfortable going that far is because I know truly nothing's going to happen to me that's going to really harm me in any kind of long-term way. So anything like that where it's like a human-to-human, like, I'm bullying you, I'm threatening you kind of thing is great for me. What's not a super fun fear play for me is actually um, involving the like nature and like the elements things that I feel like we bugs. don't have direct control around like bugs. I am terrified of bugs and I don't even know why, like even little ones, even dead ones, it's not rational. And I know that you're like serial killer versus ant. <laughs> yes. Like truly I would happily, do like a serial killer scene where like somebody has like a knife to my throat and I'm tied down to the bed and they're saying they're going to destroy me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm so happy. This is so hot. And then like, I'm in the shower and see like an ant or two and freak out. <laughs> so I think you've touched on a couple of important things. So the most important thing that I heard you say is probably something I can't emphasize enough. It's that you cannot have fear play or edge play or any play at all really without a basis of trust. And if you do have play without any kind of trust, especially fear play, edge play, 
the risk level for me, it, it just is through the roof. It's way beyond my risk profile. If I don't trust someone, I'm not doing edgy things. So that was kind of number mm-hmm. one thing that I pulled from that. But the other thing was that, you know, some things that people might find to be sort of like traditionally scary, like serial killer, Yeah, might be like super hot, but something that many people aren't bothered by, you know, like a bug or an ant could be a really big deal. It's so individual. You know, for me, I don't know. I think I would say like, for example, I, um, I tend to like edge play. I tend to like role play. And while I have explored knife play, which is, you know, a type of fear play. Well, it doesn't have to be, but it can be. Well, it is for me. Mm. You know, the way that I have used it has been in a CNC capture fantasy, like, got it. you know, yeah. don't move or I'll cut you kind of thing. So knife play for me has been folded up in fear play, but I would never, ever, ever bring a firearm into the bedroom, even like if it wasn't going to be like, we've talked about sometimes with edge play, like you can negotiate that a thing is going to be present in the scene, but not touched or like brought into the physical play. Like it can lay there on a table. It can be part of the story, but it's not going to be touched. Mm-hmm. I would never do that with a firearm. And I'm not shaming people who do, but, you know, personally, like being someone who, you know, enjoys, you know, shooting for sport and knows a lot about firearms. I just like have this mentality that this is something that is never, ever for play. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I could probably be in a little soapbox and just say that I really strongly <laughs> feel the firearm should never, ever be for play. The, the risk for catastrophic accident is so high. And so while I, I wouldn't shame people, I would definitely say that it's not something I would ever recommend. So, you know, sometimes it can be about like the level of risk that's associated with a certain fear. I think sometimes fear is there for a reason to keep you alive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then there are other things, other ways to sort of draw a line in the sand. So (laughs) I love kidnap and capture play, but I don't ever do scenes that mimic intimate partner violence because that specifically Mm -hmm. for me is such a major trigger and it's not something having lived through it, experienced it that I will ever find personally sexy. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, since like I was first sexually active, I have always loved struggle play Mm -hmm. and I I am a survivor of sexual assault separately um, you know, from intimate partner violence. And that has not changed how I feel about the sort of kidnap, capture, force, struggle play. I still love it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, I think that sometimes it's hard to even quantify why an individual person would draw the lines where they draw them. And it, you just have to ask, you can't ever assume. Yeah. Fear play is one of those things where there is no universal truth for it. It's really just something that you talk about in your negotiations and see what pushes those happy buttons and what you need to stay away from because everybody has individual experiences. Like I love gaslighting play, like hypnotic gaslighting, Mm -hmm. um, where 
it's kind of like, for those who don't know, a hypnotic gaslighting is like, are you sure you're in trance? Maybe you have been all along and you don't know it. Like something like that, where it's questioning if you're like in trance or out of trance or like what your reality is. Like questioning reality in that kind of way, super hot, kind of scary, super fun for me. But on a personal level, I have been in past relationships where I was emotionally gaslit. So that's not something that I would want to engage with on like a more casual relationship level. Like if it was like a drive by kind of thing in the relationship where it was like, no, like I didn't do that. Like if it was about them doing something and making me question if they did something, then that would not be sexy and kinky for me just because I've had like bad past experiences with being lied to and gaslit about that kind of thing. And I just wanted to say like earlier with like that, the bug example, someone could easily and understandably be like, well, yeah, you listed a serial killer role play as a role play, which is clearly kinky. And then you mentioned like ants in a shower, which is not in a kinky context. And that is true. Um, But I, have a really difficult time involving anything that like I'm naturally scared of in my kinky play. Like I have an irrational fear of like high wind. So if like I'm doing a scene outside and that's involved, it's harder for me to stay in that scene because I'm distracted by that, like like that natural fear that I have and I have a harder time harnessing it in a sexy way. Well, I also think you're touching on two separate things. Like there's the things that I'm afraid of that could become a part of the scene in a, a sort of um, like accidental, not accidental in an environmental way. Like mm. you're doing a scene outside and the scene is whatever you want it to be, but knowing that you might come into contact with something that you don't like, like ants in the grass or, mm. you know, bad weather, that's not really an intentional part of the play. That's sort of like an avoiding factors. Mm. But those same things that you would never want to accidentally become a part of your play, they tend to overlap with the things that you would never want to like intentionally bring in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you touched on something else with sort of the intimacy of fear play. I feel like, you know, knowing and playing with somebody's deepest fears is equally, if not more intimate than playing with their deepest desires. Yes. And uh, playing with the intersectionality of where those fears and desires overlap, I think is really interesting. Yes. Where they're the same thing. It could be leaning into desiring fear. Kind of feels like a inception of sorts when you put it that way. But that could even involve like humiliation a little bit, which is something I do a lot because I enjoy it. But um, it makes me really blushy and squirmy to like be reminded that I like something. And it could be a similar thing when relating with fear play. Like, they could have a knife at your throat while they're reminding you that you asked for this and like how silly of you to put yourself in danger and oh 
That's super hot. (laughs) Super hot. Okay, I'm trying not to get like so turned on now that I can't think about my show notes. Um, Thank you, Panda. You're so welcome. (laughs) That's just like, all right. Okay, but are you thinking about... Yes. (laughs) Somebody said that during a presentation that I heard recently. They were like, chef's kiss. And that's how I just felt about that. (laughs) Okay. But are you thinking about doing that to somebody or having that done to you? Well, I mean, so that's an interesting question, right? So I do engage with one partner in particular who is my personal D-type in a little bit of fear play. And I... I have to say, honestly, like with the struggle play, unless there's something that's really edgy, like a knife or breath play that's intense involved, like just the struggle play isn't really fear for me anymore mm-hmm. on the bottom. It's something I enjoy. I enjoy the physicality of it and like the sort of like battle for dominance, but I don't feel afraid when I do it like at all. Mm-hmm. So you know, if there's something else brought into it beyond like relying on just like body strength, like, you know, knife play, that kind of thing, then it can take it to a place of fear for me. But my favorite part of fear play is actually inflicting it. So <laughs> I never really got to say, um, cause we kind of moved on, but you know, you talked about why you love fear play. And one of the reasons that I love fear play is that I am, in fact, big surprise, a little bit (laughs) of a sadist. I always joke, like, about it because I don't come off. Like, people don't look at me and think sadist. I'm usually, like, in my little dolly outfit or, like, a little outfit. And I joke about being a little sadist or a little bit of a sadist because I can totally be in little space or, like, in doll space and be in, like, a little pink jumper and be totally sadistic, in fact, uh, Mac, you know, who's on the show always comments that it seems like the littler I feel, the more sadistic I feel sometimes. <laughs> so I'm not going to unpack all of that. But for me, fear play is really part of my sadistic streak. And people forget that sadism isn't always just about physical pain. And I'm a little bit more of a psychological sadist. I love giving frustration. I love giving fear. I love giving anticipation. I love, you know, things like edging to the point of torture. Rude. And <laughs> is it your turn to be a little excited? Oh my God, I hate um, you. <laughs> I am rude. Because you and I have never um, explored any of this, but two second, you know, fan break, (laughs) (laughs) like fan ourselves in. (laughs) Uh, yeah, but you know, I wouldn't say that administering a caning or causing pain doesn't sound like a good time to me, (laughs) but I love mind fucking. It is my favorite thing. And Mm. I love taking things that seem like they would be harmless and innocent and making them torturous, making them terrifying. And it's interesting that you say that because now that I'm thinking about it, the psychological and the mind fucking are the things that I'm pretty joyful to bottom for that it's really easy for me to experience like a kinky fun play fear from those activities But from those activities, it's really difficult for me to experience true fear. And that's something that may be desired for some people and not for other people. Some people might feel 
fine and happy with having like that fun kinky fear. But for me, because I'm a chaser of my own edges, I am pretty constantly looking for something that will give me that real sense of fear, Um, which actually is very difficult for me to find in psychological fear play and easier for me to find in physical fear play. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. You know, what happens to the body when you're terrified? You know, when you have a fight or flight response, when you actually have fear triggered, you know, things happen to your body. Your heart starts to race. Your body starts to shunt blood away from your hands and feet to your internal organs. You have an adrenaline rush, like your brain gives off chemicals. It's a literal like brain chemical rush. And Mm. so just like an orgasm, having intense fear creates an intense physiological body response in addition to the psychological response. And that is a thing that some people chase. So, you know, you might have a certain type of pleasure or a certain type of enjoyment that's, you know, obtained from psychological fear And, you know, then there may be something that feels particularly edgy that makes your heart really race and and that's sexy in a slightly different way. You know, I personally am a little bit claustrophobic Mm -hmm. and I can be in bondage. That's fine. It's more like the idea of being in a space like a box or something that I can't get out of or... If I'm in the small space by myself, I'm actually sometimes fine, but I struggle with like, if I go into something where I can't see the exit. So like I do a lot of nature stuff. And when I go into a cave, if I can't see where the cave comes out, that's going to be seriously scary for me. And I might Hmm. still do it. But if there are like, if it's like an adventure group and there's a line of people behind me, you can bet that I'm the last one in because I can't stand the idea that I can't see the exit and that there are people behind me blocking the way that I came in. Oh, interesting. And so it creates kind of like a claustrophobic feeling, but it's not just about the tightness of the space. It's about the blocking of the root of egress. And so it's really that you don't like feeling trapped. Yeah. Um, it's partially that. Like I can do an elevator, but if the elevator gets messed up and stops, I'm probably having a full blown panic attack if something goes wrong with the elevator. Like, and if yeah. there are people in the elevator besides maybe like one person who can calm me down, like if I'm in an elevator and there are too many people in there and I'm thinking like this might be past like the weight capacity, like what if it gets stuck? Like that is super stressful. Oh no, I'm I think we share that fear actually. <laughs> Yeah. Um, because like, it's so funny because I like being in cages. Like, I'm okay with being locked up in something. I'm okay with being in bondage. Um, and maybe this is like what we had mentioned we were going to talk about is like the reclamatory aspect of fear play. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like I can do all those things and be fine. But like, in regular life, there has to be a supervisor in my building at all times. So I had this experience the other week where one of my supervisors was sick and needed a call off and the other one wasn't going to be there for like two or three hours. So I was kind of stuck in that built, like in my store, 
yeah, until somebody else came and like, it was a mess. Like I had a doctor's appointment that I was going to miss. So I had to cancel it. I was so upset. But like, I noticed that I was having a like low key trauma response because I felt like I was trapped. Even though logically, like I knew if I had to close the store and leave that I could, but I felt trapped by the situation in like a way that was very um, not good for me. I think it highlights that often the things that cause true fear that's not fun are things that are in some way beyond our control. And I mean, sometimes fear of giving up control intentionally, like that's sexy. But like in my case, I can deal with the cave, but I'm worried about those people behind me who could Mm -hmm. do something stupid and get us all trapped. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, the factors that are outside of the, of my control and I'm a control freak and a top. And so that doesn't actually surprise me kind of like analyzing myself right now that, you know, I can face like a natural fear or challenge. But if I have to rely on somebody else being able to get me out, if I have to rely on somebody else doing what they're supposed to do, Mm -hmm. like for me to be okay, it's like a no go. And so like, if I I don't know, I could probably I could probably do a small space. I mean, it wouldn't be sexy to me. But like, right, something about a sensory deprivation hood um, if I can't easily remove it myself. So if it's really thick or if it has a lot of straps versus one that's like stretchy and I know I can easily remove myself, that's a type of fear that I don't particularly feel comfortable exploring. Well, and <laughs> no surprise to anyone who's known you for 0.2 seconds, you're a control freak. So <laughs> so giving up control is a little terrifying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and. That there's, I just want to, we're not going to talk about it today, but I just want to mention there is like kind of something tangential to fear play, which is ordeal. Um, Like ordeal gets into a little more of a spiritual or sacred kink realm um, where it's like you're really enduring something that's giving you like real intense emotion, whether that be fear, distress, um, like anger, depression, what have you. But like a lot of the times it's fear and that like you're purposefully facing that fear and going through this ordeal to come out the other side and see what you've learned about yourself. So that is something that kinky people do sometimes engage in. And so ordeal and fear they overlap play, a little bit. Yeah, they're, they overlap a little bit. They're kind of tangential, uh, but the ordeal's usually like a step further in like the sacred and serious kind of direction. Or even if it's not serious, like it could be like a for funsies because I'm a sadist and you're a masochist kind of thing. So I think you touched on something important. Fear play overlaps with a lot of different types of play. It can overlap with edge play. It can overlap with CNC. You know, it can overlap with things like knife play, breath play, you know, anything that's edgy because people have a wide range of fears. And then ordeal, you know, that is one place where things can overlap quite a bit because if you're just trying to sort of endure something for the sake of enduring something that's difficult for you, fear is really, you know, something that is very difficult to endure. 
So I can totally see the the overlap. Yeah. And I just wanted to point out too, that it doesn't have to be necessarily a serious like or an edge play kink that's related to fear play. It could be that like somebody like is really afraid of being tickled and like that loss of control or um, like being in a pet headspace and feeling like trapped and don't have a way out. Like there are lots of ways that you could engage in seemingly innocent or more silly, more lighthearted kinks, but involve an element of fear play to them. I mean, maybe somebody loves being tickled, but they're terrified that they're going to accidentally pee. <laughs> yeah. Um, or like in the past, I have done butt stuff. I don't love it now, but like I used to be more okay with it. And I was usually terrified that I was going to like have a little accident and that like I would be completely mortified if that happened. It's like fear of humiliation really at the root of that. Yes, absolutely. You know, taking tiny notes. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's so bad. It's like somebody tells me how they could envision something being terrifying. And I'm like, I could totally fuck with that. I could totally fuck with that. (laughs) Or or like take that super innocent thing and like make it like terrible in a hot way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, But you also touched on something else a little while ago and we got away from it. So I want to come back to it. And it's something that we wanted to talk about, which is that sometimes – intentionally choosing to do play that involves something related to an actual trauma can be empowering. And some people do that on purpose and some people avoid it. And both of those things are totally a hundred percent valid. You do you, you know, I mentioned having been assaulted and still enjoying CNC and struggle play and, you know, in my personal brain, the way I think about that, and it's something I've been asked about before, like, how can you enjoy that after this has happened, basically questions, um, because people ask that stuff sometimes, and it's okay, you know, I think it's important to normalize talking about it. But, you know, for me, I always loved that kind of play. So it's not empowering for me personally because I feel like I'm playing out my episode of trauma. It's empowering for me because I am not changing anything about the way I love to play on the basis of something that happened without my consent. I'm Mm -hmm. not letting the person who harmed me have one more minute of my time, any more power because I'm still going to play the way I want to play. I'm not going to allow them to take something else from me to ruin it for me. That's how I get my personal power back. And other people do, you know, for different reasons, involve their trauma in their play sometimes. And I, I'm never going to say there's a right or a wrong, you know, it's so individual, but you know, that's kind of how it works for me. So I won't say that I never bring something traumatic into fear play, particularly like if I'm bottoming, I don't think I've ever had anybody ask me as a top to go to cross that line with them. It would definitely be a conversation, like a discussion about like, why are we going here? And, you know, keep in mind that the the top's consent also matters because you may say, I think it would be really like therapeutic for me to work through this traumatic thing in a scene. And you have to consider that the top might not be comfortable with that because it's overlapping 
like your personal form of therapy with your play and you have to have explicit consent for that. Like it's not cool to, you know, say let's do a fear play scene and and not share that you're using it as a type of personal therapy because, you know, that is edgy in itself. Any kind of overlapping of something that's play with something that's therapeutic is a really big deal. And I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying that both parties have to equally consent to that. Yeah, as someone who has personally witnessed that happening, uh, Hypnostory was asked for a demo one day, and the person had a pretty specific visualization in mind. So they do the thing. And then afterwards, the person told Hypnostory that it was actually related to like a really true personal loss in their life. And myself and Hypnostory we're gentle about it. We're just like, whoa, like you probably should have mentioned that in the beginning because you probably would have gone a different direction with that demo or just not agree to do that demo because it, that's going into like therapeutic territory. And that was something that he didn't feel comfortable with not knowing before they did the thing. Absolutely. Uh, so just please, as a reminder, agree on what your goal of the scene is before you have the scene. Because I think there's a place for reclamatory work. There's a place for catharsis. Uh, but just please agree that that is the thing that you are doing. Yeah, I mean, I personally as a top... I, I love like to be sadistic and I love fear play and like it's my jam. But if I had a really intense scene and I knew I was taking it to a really intense place and then found out after the fact that I was like literally like role playing something horrible that happened to somebody and I didn't know it and that there was like real trauma rolled up in it and like I had, you know, because that is like a risky thing and that I had like engaged in something that could have caused somebody to have, you know, like serious emotional consequences and had no idea and had not consented to that. Like I, I would be so out, like it just, it would be so upsetting to me, like at a deep level. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I would never be willing to go there with somebody that I cared about after full discussion and consent. But if something like that, I would almost feel like I was sort of being used, mm -hmm. you know, as a tool, like a wish fulfillment genie, and not even just for pleasure, but for which would not also not be okay, but you know, like, but for something that could potentially have serious consequences and was kept out of the loop, you know, I would feel as a top violated, which is a thing that can happen. Yeah. And it is very possible to engage in fear play and both have the discussion that like yes we're gonna do this thing we like this idea this sounds hot and then do the thing and come across an emotional landmine that you didn't know you had and that's perfectly okay by the way like this is risky business you're doing when you're doing fear play so it's very possible that you may stray across an emotional landmine and to just know within your risk profiles that you're taking that chance by engaging in this play. Absolutely. And I, I don't mean to say that that is not okay. It's more about the ones that you know are triggers. Like if your goal for a scene 
is not just to play, but to do some kind of, you know, reclaiming work or, or sort of self therapy or whatever. And the person that you're engaging in the scene is, is not aware that that's happening, that you're going into it with the intent of doing this thing and they're a part of it, but don't know it. You know, that's where the, the breach of trust is. But like, certainly, you know, I have done fair play and had an emotional response. I'm a person who lives with PTSD. And sometimes you can't avoid it. It just happens. And, you know, sometimes it sucks. But, mm-hmm. you know, I know going into it that that can absolutely happen. And I also make sure that my partner is aware that that is aware that that can happen, not specifically to me because I have trauma, but, you know, that we both know going into this that someone could have, it could be at the top, you right. know, they could have, you know, a total emotional reaction to it knowing that this is a possibility and that we're choosing to go here together. I mean, emotional connection and intimacy, you know, that is something that we get from kink and it's absolutely something we can get from fear play. So, you know, just kind of in in summary, and then I think we're going to do a story. Fear play is super individual. Everybody draws their lines in the sand differently, sort of separating whether they want fear play to be there at all. But if they do, you know, what is sexy fear and what is traumatic fear or what is um, just really unfun fear? And all of those things are okay um, as long as they are negotiated. It doesn't matter what your things are that you want to play with as long as both parties consent. Um, Be really clear about what it is we're doing with this scene, you know, mm-hmm. is it for reclaiming or for some kind of therapeutic purpose, or is it just for fun, sexy play and have both people be on the same page about that? Know that it is edge play. It is risky. Emotional landmines can happen. They can happen on both sides of the slash. And, um, you know, that's really just something I think that folks don't acknowledge enough is that they're thinking, oh, it's edgy. It's scary. It's terrifying focus really hard on what could be traumatic for the bottom. Mm -hmm. But when you engage in any of those things where things are so emotionally loaded and intimate and intense and risky, you know, that risk is there on both sides. Yeah. And the top in that situation is probably way more likely to need assurance afterwards that they are not a monster, that they are not this terrible person. Just keep in mind that you both may need more care or different care than when you're engaging in other kinds of play. Okay, story time. (laughs) So uh, when I was in undergrad, a very young kinkster, I was in a relationship with a much, much older person than me. So at... (laughs) Their guest house in particular, there was this room (laughs) that we would sometimes call the ladybug room because it was in the middle of the, like the house was in the middle of the woods. So sometimes the bedroom, if we went long periods of time without visiting it, would kind of get overrun with ladybugs. I'm already cringing knowing you, like knowing how you feel about bugs. (laughs) Yes. And so... (laughs) One time in particular, it had been a bit since we had been to that house. So we go up to the bedroom and there are dead ladybugs everywhere. Like on the floor, on the windowsill, on the bedspread, everywhere. (laughs) 
So he put a leash and collar on me because we often engaged in pet play. (laughs) And I didn't know this was happening. He began by just leading me around the house on a leash and collar. And we were just kind of playing with control. He was being a little bit of a sadist and being a little rude, like made me come up the stairs on all fours, which was a little difficult because it was like a spiral staircase and led me to the bedroom. When he led me to that room, I froze in the doorway and was like, I can't believe you're doing this. Are we really doing this? There's no way we're doing this. And (laughs) probably looked up at him with this like, are you shitting me? Look on my face of like, no, we can't possibly be. (laughs) But he kept tugging on my leash and was walking further into the bedroom and was like, come on, this is where we're going. And I was so scared. I will always remember how scared I was in that moment. But I did it. I kept going and crawled around on that floor with those dead bugs. (laughs) I was crawling so gingerly (laughs) and just felt like I was trying to look everywhere at the same time to make sure that I wasn't going to accidentally land on one of the bugs. Because if my body touched one of them, I did not know what I was going to do. There was nothing worse that I could think of in that moment than feeling like the crunch of like a dead bug under like my hand or a knee or something like that. So are you saying that because this is a little bit more, it sounds like about the ordeal play situation with a heavy fear component because you felt personally motivated Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, I mean, it sounds like you could have potentially like reached up and unclipped your leash. Oh, yeah, I could have unclipped the leash. I could have told him I'm not doing this. Uh, There are absolutely things I could have done to not do that. I just want to be clear about that part. (laughs) Yes. But Um, no, he was so kind, was not really a sadist. He just knew that I liked having my buttons pushed and my edges pushed mm -hmm. and was like helping to facilitate that with me in kind of an unspoken way. Like we didn't need to agree on it. It was just a thing that he knew about me. Say what was in your mind though. Like what was pushing you to face that fear? Yeah. It was a million percent about me. (laughs) Like, I knew that using my words and saying no would be just as pleasing to my partner as going through with it. And I think there was almost a bit of gamification there for him of, like, how far can I make her go? Like, what is the point that is too far for her? Because he knew what a big deal this was for me. But I'm stubborn. (laughs) I am very willful. And uh, once I've made up my mind about something, I'm probably going to do it unless you can give me a really good reason not to. So we have fear play there. We Mm -hmm. have, you know, really a very intimate bond, your partner knowing that this was a thing that you needed or that you wanted to explore. And even though they were not particularly sadistic, you know, creating that with communication for you. But also we see lots of safeties built in. You were surprised by this, but 
you had access to your safe words, you had access to remove the leash. And so because you were in a relationship where you felt like those boundaries were going to be respected, you were able to test yourself, test your own boundaries. Yes, absolutely. I wish that there was a better like ending to the story that like, and now bugs don't bother me as much anymore, but they 100% still bother me as much, if not more than they did when I was that age. Right. And I, I think that in some way, any kind of edge play is that like you push yourself to some type of own personal limit. And, you know, depending where you're at, you may choose to push yourself you know, a little past that boundary because yes, we have a partner, we have a top and our top may with consent do quite a bit of pushing. But Mm -hmm. if you're doing consensual play where there are safeties in place in the end, you really have to push yourself, you know, to reach those boundaries because you still have agency, you still have control of how far will I let this go. So I feel like it, you know, a lot of people focus on, and I mean, certainly, you know, you can do a lot of pushing as a top or a lot of exploring and you can do a lot of sadistic things. Mm. Um, but that power to decide like, where is my edge that is always going to like be with the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that's really important to remember too, is that as the bottom, like the agency is yours, the control truly at the end of the day, the control is yours uh, that you can control when that scene ends or how far that scene goes, your words and your choices will be respected. All right. So now everybody is like on the edge of their seat. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we had talked about maybe doing like a a little bit of a sexy sort of hypno fear scene on the podcast. And it was something we were sort of toying with. And I don't know, something like that might potentially end up in a future Naughty talk short, Hmm. Um, no promises, but you would definitely miss it if it was going to be there and you didn't keep listening. (laughs) So, but really, thanks for having this talk with me, Panda. I think fear play is really so fun and I I just love the intimacy of it. And so I'm glad we're talking about it and maybe more people will be into it or curious. Yeah, me too. I'm really glad because it's really fun to be able to talk about this with somebody who also like truly gets it and is into it because I feel like I don't often get to do that. All right. Next up, we have hypno story again, he, they, and we keep saying we're going to talk a little bit more about hypnosis, maybe do a topic in a little more detail. And today is that day. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And so a billion different topics to talk about with hypnosis. But today we settled on talking about fractionation in a little bit more detail. Often you'll hear people say things like they're hypno fucked up in the best possible way. And not always, but often they are referring to this experience of being fractionated. So tell us a little bit about what that is. Sure. So fractionation is really nothing more than bringing someone in and out of hypnosis a whole bunch in a relatively short period of time. And this thing happens that as you repeatedly go into trance and come out of trance and go into trance and come out of trance, you tend to go a little deeper each time you go in. 
and kind of not quite come all the way out. And it tends to create a pretty profound experience. So if you want to do something that is easy and that at the end of it, the bottom really feels different, fractionation is often one of the very best ways to do that. So you can approach it in a bunch of different ways, right? So I can say, I'm going to fractionate somebody and explicitly say, okay, I'm dropping you into trance, I'm bringing you out of trance, I'm dropping you into trance, I'm bringing you out of trance, right? Like that's sort of what most people who do hypnosis will think of when you say fractionation. But it can also happen unintentionally. Like it doesn't have to be something you're doing explicitly, right? So often the way I play with people is I drop them into trance, I set up some stuff, I bring them out, play with it a little bit, drop them into trance, change something, bring them out, play with it, drop them back into trance, do something different, bring them out, change it. That will get them fractionated. And it can also happen, you know, sort of inadvertently, I think, um, a lot of times to people who are new and they're just practicing going in and out of trance or dropping somebody and bringing them up for the first time. Maybe they're not necessarily doing a lot of other suggestions because they're just sort of practicing that very basic skill. And without even necessarily meaning to, what they are doing is dropping somebody and pulling them up repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. It it does not require a set intention to create fractionation. It just requires doing the thing. And so whatever reason you're doing the thing, right, because you're going to a speed trance event where, you know, you're potentially being hypnotized by a different person, sometimes as much as every seven or eight minutes, um, the Online ones tend to run a little slower than that, but the in-person ones often are done with six-minute rounds. And, you know, that can be a lot of trances in a big hurry. Um, so, you know, absolutely, you can end up really fractionated from that sort of thing. I had my first experience with speed trance recently, and it was an online one, and it was a really fun time and I was doing it in the hypnotist role. So um, I have not experienced that from the perspective of a, a subject or a bottom, but you definitely notice that as the game goes on, that people are progressively more fractionated at the time that they arrive because they've already, you know, worked with three or four or 10 other hypnotists before they ever got to you. Yep. Absolutely. And for a lot of the people who bought them in speed trance, that's exactly their goal, right? So I've had friends at HypnoCons that get one of those clickers that you use to, you know, you press it with your thumb every time another person walks into the room to count how many people are in the, in the room. And they try to see how many times they can have someone drop them at the con in a day to see how fractionated they can get. And I have one friend who got over a thousand in a day. Wow, that's quite a few. Now that was all he did the whole day. And oh boy, was he fucked up at the end of it. But <laughs> and probably was- pretty happy about it. Oh yeah. Yeah, really, really happy. 
Now, we sort of jumped the gun a little bit and dove right into how do we achieve a state of fractionation? How does it happen? But I think that it's worthwhile to circle back and talk about, you know, like your friend with the clicker, why do people seek this out intentionally? You know, what does it feel like? Why do people want to be in this state? Or why would they want to, as a hypnotist, induce this state on purpose? Mm -hmm. So I think there's kind of two big things. One is that it very, it feels very altered to most people. It, most people find it, it is like kind of like being drunk or kind of like being high. It's a very altered feeling state that most people who do hypnosis find extremely pleasant and pleasurable. And so that's sort of one goal in and of itself. But the other thing is it tends to create hyper suggestibility. So everything you do with hypnosis works better and easier with somebody who's fractionated. And so if you're somebody who as a bottom, a lot of stuff tends not to work and you want to explore something that you maybe haven't been able to do before getting really fractionated first is likely to um, sort of help lubricate that process because you can get to a point where your brain will take almost anything in a safe context as a suggestion. One of my favorite things to do with fractionation play is actually um, something you introduced me to which is to play with Zebu cards. And those are really fun for folks who are new to hypnosis to practice their hypnotic language skills. But the basic idea is that it's like a deck of playing cards. And so you can play any kind of card game with the deck of cards that will work. But then each card also has a phrase on it. And you use the that type of phrase or that style of phrase to give a suggestion to the other people who are playing when you play the card. And I like to drop in a lot of other suggestions to drop back down or to come back up or deepeners and that sort of thing to produce a state of fractionation in the people that I'm playing with, which makes the game progressively more fun as it goes on. And my favorite thing to do is actually to cheat, like to make <laughs> my opponent forget that they haven't had a turn yet so that I have like six turns in a row. And then at the end, they realize that all their cards are gone because I've cheated. And um, that's half of the fun is that that sort of thing goes if you can get away with it. Um, but yeah, that's one really fun thing that you can do with it. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to be clear, the, the, the phrases, the language patterns on the Zebu cards have blanks in them. So it's it's a formula for giving a kind of Ericksonian style suggestion, and then you put in what the suggestion actually is in the blank. That's a better explanation. Yeah, that was a lot clearer than my attempt. There, there are a really great tool for developing your skills with hypnotic language. I, I have found them really useful. Um, I also have used the same deck of cards, not playing a card game, but just like while I'm doing a trance with someone, playing with them in 
just playing with the cards and just randomly shuffling them and picking one and incorporating that phrase in and then taking the next one and that phrase and the next one in that phrase. And I, I don't do it like a game with rules, right? So if I get a pattern that I don't want to use right then, I just ignore it. But you can really build up the flow of hypnotic language really easily by practicing that way. And by the way, if you're too shy to do that with a human or you don't have a human play partner to do it with, then practice hypnotizing a stuffy. They drop really, really deeply, really easily. They just don't tend to be super responsive, but that's okay. I feel like I used a stuffy to trance you once. Am I imagining that? Didn't no, I you use- did. It was, I think it was my Grogu stuffy, my baby Yoda stuffy. Mm-hmm. That was really fun. And I mean, I, I like to be in little space, but I remember, I, I think I was saying something along the lines of let yourself sink into his eyes. And he has like these really big, cute eyes, total tangent. But that, that, that was a fun memory that just popped into my head. Well, it actually reminds me of a really good story that is about fractionation, which is sort of an interesting thing. So um, when Yoshi first ex- started to explore being a hypnotist and was hypnotizing me, it was, again, much like Sonny, very much in little space. And one time he had gotten me really fractionated and took this little stuffy named Slush that's a dog with really, really big eyes and held slush in front of my face and said, you can just give slush all of that fractionation. You can feel it going out your eyes and into his eyes. And all of the fuzziness went away. It was the strangest thing. And then he said, okay, you can now slush is going to give all that fractionation back to you. And it came back. And now do I really think we're transferring it from my brain into the stuffy? No. But it's a way of suggesting more or less fucked up feeling, essentially. And what we found was that at least for me and for some other people I've done this with now, um, that is kind of an adjustable thing that can be done with suggestion. Now, what I will say is just because you use a suggestion to make the fuzziness go away does not mean you're not still in an altered state. Because we Mm -hmm. experimented with it, and I was definitely still hyper-suggestible, just as hyper-suggestible as I would have been when I was really fuzzy. And so, I, you know, one of the typical pieces of safety advice is don't drive when you're really fractionated, right? Don't operate heavy machinery when you're really fractionated. You know, when you're really fractionated is maybe not the time to be on shift at a nuclear power plant. Um, You know, so... That still all applies, right? So even if you use suggestions to be clear-headed, I would not assume that your responses are as um, as responsive as you would normally expect them to be. Absolutely. And, you know, having been on the receiving end of a really negative experience, because I was in a very fractionated state, And the person that I was playing with at the time didn't recognize it. 
it's definitely something to watch for, not just in yourself, but as the top. So, you know, if you've been doing a lot of hypno play, you should probably expect and plan for, you know, time to address it in your aftercare. But just have the expectation that if you're doing a lot of hypno play, that there's a, a pretty decent chance that your partner is going to be fractionated and also to be on the outlook for it because it's it's not fun to be on the receiving end. Sometimes surprise suggestions are really wonderful, but sometimes, you know, surprise accidental suggestions that your partner didn't mean can can be quite unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's again, it always to me kind of comes back to what's the relationship, how much trust is there, and what's the risk profile. So um I would probably not get super, super fractionated for the first time with somebody I didn't know reasonably well in the same way that I wouldn't recommend getting very drunk or very high around people who you don't know well, or at least without somebody who you can trust to make sure that you're safe, at least until you are very familiar with those states and how you are in those states, right? So me fractionated, I may may kind of enjoy not being terribly functional, but usually I can pull out as much functionality as I need. And so I don't worry too much about it. Other people may really need to be kind of watched if they're very, very fractionated, that it may be that the aftercare is going to be for an hour or two that somebody should be keeping an eye on them, right? A friend of mine in the hypno community tells a story that when they were at a con and had gotten really fractionated in a hypno scene and they wanted to go see the vendor floor because that was the time they had to do it. But they knew that their judgment was not going to be good in that state. And so they gave their wallet to a friend who was going with them and said, don't let me buy anything, right? Just let me look. And then if there's something I want to buy, I can come back and buy it later. Because the chances of them spending an enormous amount of money on stuff that maybe they didn't really need was very high in that state. Right, because each vendor not realizing is saying, I wonder if you would really love to have this item, you know, things that aren't meant to be hypnotic suggestions, but in that state might make you feel, you know, the impulse to buy something that you wouldn't otherwise. Absolutely. Absolutely. And fractionation can be cumulative, right? So if you go to a hypnocon and do like a bunch of scenes all weekend, you might still be altered the next morning. That's very unusual. You know, I generally say one scene, usually a half hour, most people pretty much have their brain back, even if they've done a bunch of fractionation. An hour or two, they almost certainly do. But if you're the kind of person who likes to bottom for hypnosis a lot and has a lot of people you want to play with at a con and might do three or four or five or more scenes a day and some casual trance in between, and you do that for three days at a con, you might be pretty fucked up still on Monday on your way home. Now that we've had a few words of caution, 
the really fun stuff that can happen. So, I mean, why don't you say what fractionation sort of feels like to you personally? Because you, you've mentioned you've experienced it. So can you describe it? Yeah. So from, it's not super easy to describe. It's like, it's it, it, the best language I have is it feels very altered and kind of high, I guess, and kind of floaty. So it, it's, like I'm not quite there. It very kind of trancey feelings for me. It is difficult. I mean, if I just like thought of words that come to mind, I think of like drifty, floaty, um, trancey. I think of puddle. Um, but I, I mean, not everybody has, you know, experienced being slightly intoxicated with you know, a substance or with alcohol, for example, but having consumed alcohol in my lifetime, I will admit this, I can almost equate it to like that little bit of like a fuzzy buzz, like not, not really like drunk, but when you're just starting to feel like a little bit tingly. So when you're just on the edge of being sort of slightly altered is one way to describe it. And as a person who has experienced um, dissociation in an unpleasant context. I can also say sometimes it feels sort of like a pleasant version of dissociation where you have that floaty, slightly out of body feeling, but not in a necessarily in a traumatic way, generally in a, a more pleasant kind of floaty, enjoyable way. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to talk about it. That dissociation we often talk about as something that's inherently negative and it isn't necessarily that it's often dissociation is a tool that we sometimes use in hypnosis intentionally in order to help create effects and experiences. And that's a totally fine thing to do. Like it, that's not a dangerous thing to do in that kind of context. Um, and so, yeah, definitely dissociative is, is a good way to talk about it, but in a very positive feeling kind of way. You know, being a person who has experienced trauma when I'm fractionated, I feel like sometimes if there is a trauma trigger in my surroundings, the the sort of threshold for what will trigger sort of negative dissociation is a, a little bit lower. So it takes quite a bit for it to happen to me when I'm just sort of in my normal state, but I might be more sensitive to trauma triggers if I have a glass of wine or if I'm fractionated. Well, I mean, I think th there's been um, a bunch of research on the brain states associated with kink and with subspace specifically uh, that was done by the science of kink research team who Google them. They're awesome. And the language that they determined was specifically a, a, a transient state of hypofrontality in the brain, which is to say that the front part of the brain, the mm -hmm. executive function, the higher brain functions are kind of sh somewhat shut down. And I think that, you know, I've said before that I think hypnosis and subspace are very close cousins. And I suspect that if they did the same kind of brain studies on somebody who's really fractionated, I bet they would see that same kind of transient hypofrontality. And I also don't mean to discourage folks who 
maybe have a history of trauma from getting fractionated or engaging in hypnoplay. Like I said, that's something that I've experienced personally, and I really love hypnosis. It's just that, you know, I'm careful about the spaces that I choose. Although I will say that I have ended up kind of fractionated from topping a lot too, that a lot of people experience a kind of top trance that, that, they go into trance themselves when they're hypnotizing other people. And so you definitely can get mm-hmm. somewhat fractionated from topping. Although my experience has always been that it's a lot less than if I was bottoming. And I think that that's most people's experience, but it's just something to be aware of. And if you want to do that kind of play in a space that might be a little more difficult because you want to do it at a con or something, then maybe you have a friend who knows you well enough to know what kind of stuff is likely to be a problem and who is not going to be so altered and is going to take care of you, you know, and make sure that they steer you away from the kinds of things that seem problematic or get you into a quieter space. If it feels like you're starting to get overwhelmed. So it's it's just a matter of sort of knowing yourself and knowing what kind of strategies you can use to mitigate risks that you feel may be a problem. Yeah, that's why I'm hesitating because I'm I'm thinking about it now and I'm like, you know, maybe that's not even accurate. I don't know. I think that if you were with Mac who's your daddy and who you have this very deep trusting relationship with and who knows you really well and is going to take care of you, you'd probably be fine. Because if things start to go south, he's going to see that and catch it before it becomes a problem in all likelihood. And you, you know, get you out of the state or get you out of the space or change whatever needs to be changed. That's a good point. And I mean, I'm also sort of newly navigating in-person things of all kinds again after the pandemic and sort of practicing again, like using my grounding skills and reassessing my boundaries because the reality is that I got pretty good at those things. And then, you know, even like the grocery store, that sort of thing I was avoiding because of COVID. So you know, it's definitely something that I'm evolving. And the the main point is, it's just something to be aware of when you're thinking about what your boundaries are. All right. So um, I think we should take it out on sort of a, a fun note, because ultimately, fractionation is a really fun and enjoyable thing. And just like anything else in kink, you know, you want to take safety precautions and be aware of certain things. But I personally think it's awesome. It's a state that I enjoy inducing. It's a state I enjoy being in. And, you know, just a really fun example, I think about you know, we were talking about little space and I have so many, you know, nursery rhymes. And um, as most people do, even if they're not a little, because they, you know, experienced those things in childhood, certain things get like sort of burned into your brain um, in a subconscious place. And so I've been in the state of fractionation and, you know, a person that I was playing with mimicked like the big bad wolf and just took like a big breath to huff and puff and with no warning it was sort of a surprise thing in the context of the you know the play but um I was sitting on the floor and I just sort of like fell over and it it was almost like it was real and that was a really fun and silly moment and I often when I do doll play with Mac with my daddy 
I get to such a place of hypno effed up or or fractionated that sometimes I lose track of whether I'm in like human space or doll space. And because our play often involves like a switching back and forth where I'm dropped into hypnosis and into doll space and then pulled back out into human space. And as I get progressively more fractionated and the boundary between trance and not trance becomes fuzzier, I sometimes lose track of which state I'm in and I find myself getting sort of stuck and that's really fun. So um, Mac will often be like, you know, do you need a little help? Are you stuck? And I sort of have an automatic response when I get stuck now that's just started coming out, which is to ask him, you know, am I a girl or am I a doll? (laughs) Daddy. Um, And that's just kind of a, a really fun state to be in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are so many fun ways to play with fractionation. Um, I'll finish with one more fun idea, which is not exactly fractionation, but is very close. And that is that flipping someone between states hypnotically, even if the states are not in trance and out of trance, can make somebody feel really fucked up in a, in a, in maybe the same way. Maybe it is fractionation or maybe it's just something similar. But, you know, flipping someone between their normal mental space and a bimbo state or uh, between if they're switchy between feeling dominant and feeling submissive and going back and forth like that in a short period of time can leave them feeling really fucked up in a way that people like, you know, it's very much like fractionation. and, And I think it's probably the same thing. Uh, but sometimes it happens even faster with that kind of switching. That's a good point, because actually with the doll state and human state, it's really like tranced human and doll state. It's not really all the way up. And so even though, you know, it's not necessarily including like a direct suggestion to drop and then come back, it's a, a toggling between the two states within trance. It still ends up being the same exact effect, at least for me. I don't know if you can really call it fractionation, I guess, but it feels exactly the same. Yeah, I would still call it fractionation. I think it probably is. All right. Well, hopefully we have given people a little bit more information about what that term actually means and also some really fun and sexy ideas if they're starting to explore hypnosis. Thanks for having this talk with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm sure that we will have many more such discussions about, you know, fun little niche hypnotopics. Um, I'd like to incorporate them on a, at least a semi-regular basis because I think there's some interest there. So I'm looking forward to talking with you next time. Yeah, same here. Thanks as always for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnyleemaine.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.